Good morning. My name is Nick Swan, the associate pastor here at Grace. Welcome to all of you who are gathering online. Uh, this week and next week, we have two standalone messages. I'll be preaching this week, obviously. Ian Hammond will preach next week. And then we will be starting a new series on the book of Joshua beginning January 9th. Uh, the title of this morning's message is Jesus, Our Great High Priest. So if you're able, please stand now for the reading of God's Word. This is Hebrews 4, 14 through 5, 10. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. But of this he is, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, as we celebrate Advent and the birth of your Son, I pray that we would both be thankful for Christ's humanity and amazed at your design that you sent Christ, the Son of God, fully divine, to be Jesus the Christ, the Son of Mary, fully man, that he might represent us and save us to the uttermost. Father, may your Son, Christ, shepherd us by the power of your Spirit this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. We all know the experience of someone being able to relate to us because they have gone through a similar experience themselves. So picture your college classmates, law school, med school. You've gone through and been forged through this education process, but you also have friends who have gone through it with you, and therefore you relate to them and can connect with them. The kinship that you have as parents with other parents who have walked through marriage and pregnancy and having children together and seeing those children grow up, you're, you're knit together through those common experiences. Think about the pain of miscarriage. Frequently those who have experienced miscarriage will find a whole community of people they did not know existed who come alongside them in that moment and help them to grieve the loss of a child. Grief share groups who walk with people as they, they deal with the grief of losing someone close to them. We have these shared experiences, and these shared experiences allow us to empathize with others and understand them because they too have been through what we have been through. 
In our passage this morning, we learn that one of the wonders of Jesus taking on human flesh is that he therefore understands what is to live as we live. We often acknowledge that Jesus became one of us to represent us. His perfect life is given to us as a gift of faith. His death in our place as our substitute paid for our sins. But one of the ways we don't often talk about Jesus being our representative is as Jesus as our high priest. Now this priest language, unless you're Catholic, is probably somewhat unfamiliar to you. So let me define for you, as one of my seminary professors defined, what is a priest? said, the fundamental function of a priest is to serve as an intermediary between God and human beings. A priest represents God to us, and a priest brings us into the presence of God. And our passage tells us that Jesus is this intermediary. He's this mediator between God and us. Or as Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. In order for us to have a living relationship with God, we need someone to mediate, to bridge the gap between God and us. Someone who can represent us to God and bring us into God's presence. Jesus is that mediator. He's both fully God and he is fully man. And he is the one who can mediate between the divine God and us human beings. Because Jesus is fully man, he knows what it is to be one of us. To suffer as we suffer. To know all of our limitations. To be tired, to be hungry, to be lonely, to be betrayed, to walk through grief. To be tempted as we are tempted. Just like fellow human beings who can empathize and understand us when they've walked through similar experiences, Jesus, as our great high priest, can empathize with us because he has walked through all of the same trials and temptations and difficulties that we ourselves have walked through. And it's in our weakness, a weakness that he himself understands, that Jesus as God moves toward us. He passes through the heavens, as this passage says, and he comes to us, he draws near to us, becomes one of us, and then as God brings us back into the presence of God in heaven, where we can find mercy and strength in our time of need. The season of Advent, which culminated yesterday, is a wonderful time for us to contemplate what does it mean for Jesus to be human, and in particular, what does it mean for him to be a divine human being who represents us as our priest. The main point this morning is this. Because Jesus is one of us, he understands our weaknesses and offers us mercy and grace in our time of need. Because he is one of us, he understands our weaknesses and offers us mercy and grace in our time of need. First point this morning is this. Jesus moves toward us. The writer of Hebrews, in these opening verses, 14 to 16, he describes for us this role of the high priest that Christ takes. Look with me at verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And then in verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Ephesians 4 talks about this motion or movement of God that he descended and then he ascended. Christ came to us and then he goes back to God. And here in this passage, it's captured by this phrase, passed through the heavens. And it's this movement that is important. 
Because it describes how Jesus, our priest, both descends to display the perfection of God to us, and then us sins, bringing us back to God where we can find grace and mercy. And this movement required Jesus to bridge a couple of different gaps. This movement required that Jesus become one of us. We need someone, needed someone who could bridge the gap between God who is divine and transcendent and other. He is our creator and us that are created. And so Jesus, being both fully God and fully man, is able to bridge a gap that we ourselves could never bridge. This movement also requires Jesus to bridge the gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness. Hebrews 2 says it this way, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, Jesus had to take on human flesh. He then had to offer himself as a sacrifice on our behalf so that he could bring us into the presence of God. And propitiation is just a fancy word of saying he was a substitutionary sacrifice that paid the penalty for our sins so that we sinful human beings could then go into the presence of a holy God without fear. He has paved a way for us to go into the presence of God and do so without any hesitation, without any fear. Hebrews 9 says it this way, Jesus as our high priest entered once for all into the holy place, into the presence of God, not by means of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, securing for us an eternal redemption. Jesus passed through the heavens, became one of us, died for us, and now makes a way for us to be brought into the presence of God. And he did all of these things as our great high priest. Now, you'll notice there are two commands in these opening verses. There are things that we are to do in light of who God is. It says, let us hold fast our confession and let us draw near. But before we dive in on those, we're going to circle back to those at the end. We're going to follow the argument of the writer of Hebrews for a moment. And we're going to digress. We're going to talk about what it means for a human priest to represent us and how Jesus is a far greater high priest Therefore, when we can be brought into his presence, we are able to obey these two commands. So let's move on to the second point, which is a human high priest. A human high priest. Now, to give you some context, the writer of Hebrews is writing to a people who are withering a bit under persecution. And what they're tempted to do is to no longer be distinct as Christians, but return into the fold of Judaism, which was a protected religion at the time. So they want to turn back from Christ, and they want to return to the Old Testament system of priests and sacrifices. And in order to keep them from doing so, the writer of Hebrews is saying to them, don't go back. These are inferior priests and inferior sacrifices. Hold fast your confession, because we have a great high priest who has gone into the heavenlies for us. Do not fear Hold fast your confession. But in order to make that argument, he first says, don't go back. Here's what a human priest is like. This is not the one that you want to trust. And that's what's going on in verses 1 through 4. In these verses, we have the qualifications of a human high priest. So a human high priest were chosen from among men, verse 1. Every priest in the Old Testament descended from Aaron, Moses' brother. So they're human, they're men, verse 4. 
Each high priest would serve for a time and eventually be replaced by the next high priest in line. And these priests were appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, and they did so by offering gifts and sacrifices. Verse 1. These human high priests were able to sympathize with those they represented because they too were sinful. So when the people were ignorant and wayward, they could relate to them because they themselves were ignorant and wayward. They could also empathize with the need of forgiveness because they too needed forgiveness because it says that they had to offer sacrifices for themselves before they could even offer sacrifices for those they represented. Verses 2 and 3. So what becomes obvious quite quickly is that this system left something to be desired. These priests were supposed to represent God to the people and usher people into the presence of God, but they themselves needed the very same things. They were human beings who needed forgiveness. They had to offer sacrifices on behalf of themselves, and there's no way that a fallible, sinful human priest could ever usher anyone into the presence of a holy God. So at the end of the day, yes, they could relate to those they represented because they were sinful like them, but they could do little more than commiserate with them. Yep, I know. We're broken people. We need, sin. we need sacrifices for our sins. I'm just like you. It's easy to relate, but not really something that gives us much hope. So imagine with me what it would have felt like to be one of these believers in the Old Testament. So imagine with me you live on a farm on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And once a year... You need to go to the temple to offer sacrifices. So you pick some animals from your own animals. Now they're without blemish, but they are still animals. And then you and your family are going to lead these animals into Jerusalem, where that year Zechariah is the high priest, and he's going to offer sacrifices for you. Now here's the thing. You know Zechariah. Zechariah comes over to your house quite regularly because he's a member of your synagogue. And Zechariah is a good guy. Don't get me wrong. But he's kind of like you. Every once in a while, he maybe has a little too much to drink, gets a little rowdy. His uh, wife is kind of a gossip. Uh, His kids are a little crazy. And every once in a while, you wonder, is this guy really on the up and up? Because when you trade some of your olive oil for some of his wheat, it always kind of seems like you come up a little bit short, like the guy isn't quite totally honest. And it's the same Zechariah that you then go to the temple to have represent you as your high priest. So you bring your animals, and Zechariah sacrifices for them, and... It atones for your sin, and then you all go back to the village, and you and Zechariah are hanging out in the village just a couple weeks later after the festival's over. And then next year, it's Ezekiel's turn, and Ezekiel's even worse than Zechariah, and he's going to be your high priest the next year. Now, I don't want to denigrate this Old Testament system by kind of mocking it or making light of it. Paul says that it's a glorious system. It's the means through which God has allowed people to draw near to a holy God. But we should quickly begin to realize... That this system leaves something to be desired. How can sinful human beings represent a holy God? How can a sinful human being who has to repeatedly, not once for all, but repeatedly offer the blood of animals on his behalf and on your behalf give you any comfort that you have forgiveness of sins? And how can this person who needs atonement themselves ever bring you to God? Really bring you to God? And this is the point that the writer of Hebrews is trying to make. The system was never meant to be the be-all and end-all. The system was something that was pointing forward to a day when there would be a perfect priest who could offer once for all a sacrifice that could take away the sins of all those that they represented. Someone who could perfectly display the holiness and beauty of God to the people they represented and could infallibly and once for all bring them into the presence of God as their priest. 
What was needed was a human priest, yes, who could empathize in every way, but also a divine priest who could do so perfectly. Verse 15 says it this way, the people needed not only a priest who was tempted as they were tempted, but one who was tempted as they were tempted yet without sin. And obviously you know where this is going. The great high priest is Jesus. Point number three, Jesus, our great high priest. I'm going to take these next few verses one at a time. So let's look at verse 5, 5. Jesus, our great high priest. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son today, I have begotten you. So Jesus, just like all the other human high priests, is appointed, but his appointment is quite different. He is appointed by God the Father, and he's appointed as the Son of God to represent all of his people as their great high priest. This is no fallible human being who will live and die. This is the perfect, inerrant, infallible Son of God who will represent God's people as the divine Son of God. Verse 6, as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is a forever priest. Again, he's no mere man, a descendant of Aaron, who lives and dies and is replaced by the next priest, who lives and dies and is replaced by the next priest. Jesus lives forever. Therefore, he can forever be in the presence of God, offering sacrifices on our behalf and interceding for us. He's always there, and therefore we always have access to God's throne of grace. It is this divine Son of God, this forever high priest who took on flesh so that he might live for us and die for us as one of us so that he might fully and completely save us. In this great act of salvation, it was costly. Notice that Jesus' divinity didn't short-circuit the challenges of being a human being. I think sometimes we think because he was divine that that the real challenges of life didn't touch him in the same way, and yet these verses tell us otherwise. Look at verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. In the days of his flesh, Jesus suffered, and he suffered for real, just like we do, praying crying with supplications, crying out to God to help him in his time of need. Think of the Garden of Gethsemane. He's begging the Father, can somehow this cup of wrath be taken from me, crying so profusely that he's sweating blood. He suffered for real as a human being in our place. And it was through this suffering that he was perfected. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So even as the divine son of God, in his human nature, Jesus suffered and was made perfect through that suffering. In other words, throughout the entirety of his life, Jesus was earning for us a perfect righteousness that we ourselves could never merit. We often think about what Jesus did for us when he died for us, which is immensely important. He paid the debt of our sins. But if he had left us there, that would be insufficient to bring us to God. He also had to live a perfectly righteous life that could then be given to us. And it's in that righteousness that we are now free 
to approach the throne of grace in our time of need. It was by his death and his life that Jesus became the source of an eternal salvation to all who obey him. This is our high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, a priest forever. And as glorious as that Old Testament system is, it pales in comparison to Jesus. Hebrews 7 summarizes it this way. It says, The former priests, they were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent and unstained and separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. This long-awaited priest has arrived The Son of God, a forever high priest who can perfectly reveal God to us and then can bring us into the presence of a holy God through the offering of himself once and for all. So it's in light of these realities that the writer to Hebrews calls us to respond in those two ways that I mentioned earlier. All the way back, verses 14 and 16. Let's look at those together. Verse 14. Therefore, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So let's begin with holding fast to our confession. Remember what I said about what was happening to these, the audience of this letter. They're suffering persecution. They're being tempted to turn back to a weak and fallible precursor to what Christ has done. And so the author takes great pains. Don't go back. Don't go back to a fallible system that only pointed forward. Hold fast to your confession of faith, and you can do so because you have a great high priest who empathizes with you and is with you through this. This this exhortation takes into account just how hard it is for us to hold fast in the face of persecution. Throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer highlights all of the implications of Jesus' high priesthood. But in this case, he points out how Jesus, because he is human, can sympathize with our weakness. In particular, he can sympathize with our weakness when we are tempted to turn back from Christ. Which leads to the second exhortation. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When holding fast to our confession seems impossible, when we are weighed down by the challenges of this life, Jesus gives us a solution. He doesn't just say, hold fast. He's also made a way for us to hold fast in the midst of these challenges because he's made a way for us to draw near to the throne of grace where we can receive mercy and help in our time of need. He knows our need. He knows what it is to face temptation, and he therefore makes a way for us to receive mercy in the midst of that temptation. So regardless of where you are this morning, you have a great high priest who understands you, who empathizes with you. 
Some of us may legitimately be able to say, we know no one who is going through what we are going through right now. But none of us can say that to Christ. He has been tempted in every way we are tempted. He has suffered in every way that we suffer. He knows what it is to be us, and he offers us help in the midst of that temptation. Because Jesus has become one of us, and he's dealt with the problem of sin, we now have help. God offers us the ability to resist temptation. When we face what it looks like to not necessarily know God's love or to feel like God is distant. When we struggle to have assurance of our salvation. When we face chronic illness. When it feels difficult to persevere in our marriages. When it's hard to love a wayward child. He's with us when we are facing death. Our own death or those that we love. Or when we have already been grieving the loss of someone who has died near to us. He's with us when we fight depression. When we battle fear. When we struggle for purpose. When we fear the rejection of friends. Whatever you struggle with this morning. Jesus has already walked that pathway before you. And he understands your pain, your fear, and your doubt. Jesus held fast in the midst of temptation in order to save us. So that in our moment of temptation, we can be assured of this, that he has a hold of us, that he's interceding for us, and that he has made a way for us to always draw near to the Father. So in light of that, friends, let's hold fast our confession. Jesus is the hope of the world. There's no, no other thing we can turn to for salvation. It's pointless to turn back to things we know will never save. Jesus truly is our only hope. And when our faith falters, as it often does, know this, that Jesus has made a way for you to freely come to the Father and receive grace and mercy in your time of need. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, each of us bear burdens this morning, many of them hidden, maybe some of them even hidden, from those who love us most. And so, Father, I pray that this morning that each one of your sons and daughters who are gathered would have full assurance that you love them, that you know them, that you understand what it means to be them, and that you freely offer access to the riches and abundance of your mercy and grace. Father, may we rest in that this morning. May we celebrate that this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.